Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been behind a car at a red light and the light turned green, but the car didn't move? Isn't that frustrating? Now, let me be honest. God's watching. Did you blow your horn? Of course you did. In, a, in, a, in the name of Jesus, I love you, my brother, sort of way, right? Now, if you blow your horn more than once, then it's, it's not in the name of Jesus. It's getting a little beyond that, all right? But of course you blew your horn. Somebody's sitting at a green light and they don't move. That's frustrating because green means go. Absolutely. And it's frustrating to sit there and they're not going. Now, usually the reason people don't go is for one of two reasons. Either, number one, they're, they're just oblivious to what's going on around them. You know, they're zoned out. And that's happened to me before. You know, you're thinking about something coming up or someplace you're trying to get to or whatever. You're just zoned out. You don't realize the light turned green. Or most of the time, it's not that they're oblivious. Most of the time, they are distracted by something. What would that something be most of the time? Cell phone, absolutely, cell phone. Uh, or, of course, it may be putting on makeup or fooling with the radio or whatever, but, it, but most of the time they're distracted by their cell phone. They've, they've got a green light, but they just won't go. Now, if you're sitting there saying, I can't sit there the whole time, this is blinding me, preacher. I'm going to turn that off in just a second, so don't worry about it, okay? You know, what's true on the road is also true in the church. God has given his people his church, a green light. And and a green light means what? Let me show you the green light that he's given us. We're going to put it on the screen. You don't even need to turn there because this is not our primary text. But it's a very familiar scripture to some of you at least. And the scripture is Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And it's called the Great Commission. Now, I'm going to ask you to say it with me. It's called what? Uh, Great Commission. Now, the reason you'll see that's important in just a moment, but please remember Matthew 28, 18 through 20 is called the what? Great Commission. And here's the Great Commission. Here's the word the Lord has given us. His last words before he ascended back to heaven, his final words were these. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. You've got a green light. From this time forward, I'm giving you a green light. You've been with me, I've been training you, you've been spending years with me, but now I'm giving you a green light. So therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely, notice this, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus gave his disciples and ultimately us a green light when he said, go. Go and make disciples of the nations. And that must have been a staggering thing to think about. To take the gospel to the nations. For these humble Galileans, most of them fishermen, it must have been a staggering thought to think about taking the gospel to the nations. They were given the greatest assignment in the world, the greatest assignment in history. Go and make disciples of the nations. But yet they were also given the greatest presence in the world. He said, surely I am with you Always. I wonder if sometimes God gets frustrated when he's given us a green light and we're not going. There was a new Barna research that came out just this past month that just absolutely floored me as a pastor. It burdened me 
as a pastor. This Barner research said that 51, we're going to put it on the screen, 51%, look at this, 51% of American churchgoers say they've never heard of the Great Commission. Is that mind-boggling? And that's the reason a moment ago I said Matthew 28, 18 through 20 is called the what? It is the, I want Mount Airy to know what it is. I don't want us to be in that 51%. 51% of churchgoers don't know the Great Commission. Jesus has given us a green light. And we're like, I don't know. I don't know what that means. And then the, worst, the, the, the news gets worse. And I'm not trying to depress you, but I've got to give you some bad news before I give you some good news. Another recent report came out from Baptist Press, and it said that although the, South Carolina, I mean, the Southern Baptist Convention this year, we added 479 new churches, which sounds great, that, that we added 479 new churches. They also said that uh, we gave as Southern Baptist $1.1 billion, with a B, billion dollars to support mission work that sounds incredible that sounds amazing but then the rest of the report was not so amazing the rest of the report was basically it's very evident that southern baptists are not reaching as many people for christ as they used to and then they started giving us the metrics in that report of evidence that southern baptists are not going like they used to go Listen to these numbers. It'll break your heart. Baptisms have dropped in the Southern Baptist Convention from last year to the previous year. It dropped 4.89%, or to put that in another way, we baptized 14,400 fewer people last year in the Southern Baptist Convention than we did the previous year. And you might say, well, it was just a down year. Well, no, in reality, that's been happening for nine of the last 11 years. For nine of the last 11 years, we've been baptizing 10 to 15,000 people less each year than we did the previous year, which is heartbreaking. It takes now 54 Southern Baptists to reach one person for Christ. When I came out of seminary, that number was about 38, 39, maybe 40. Well, it was generally the number. It takes like 38 to 40 Southern Baptists to reach one person for Christ. As I have pastored these 30-some years, that number has grown from 38 to 54 Southern Baptists to reach one. Tom Rayner is a researcher, also president of Lifeway. He said, we are a denomination for the most part that has lost its evangelistic passion. Translation, we are a denomination for the most part. God has given us a green light, but we're just sitting there. Rayner also reported that every year in the United States, six to 10,000 churches die and close their doors. Now, that's just not Southern Baptist. That's all denominations. But let that, let that bother you for a moment. That every year, six to 10,000 churches, every year in America, six to 10,000 churches close their doors every year in America. That, that is an average of one to 200 churches every week closing their doors somewhere in America. Now, to make that a little bit more personal, let's talk about the Southern Baptist Convention. We're going to put this slide on the screen. Did you know that in the Southern Baptist Convention, we are averaging about 1,000 churches a year closing their doors? 1,000 a year. 
that translates to 83 churches a month or 19 churches a week. On average, 19 churches this week at the Southern Baptist Convention will vote to close their doors for the final time. I want you to feel the weight of this number for a moment. By the way, this is a church in, Pick, or in, in Liberty. I drove there yesterday. I've driven by this church many times. It sits in the fork in the road before you get to downtown Liberty. And every time I drive by that church, I get bothered by it because I just see it abandoned. And it's sat there. I've been here 21 years, and it's sat there empty for all of those years and who knows how many before then. This is a representation of the 1,000 churches that close their doors every year. I want you to feel the weight of that number for a moment. I want you to feel the vacuum in those communities as the gospel story is no longer being shared there. Just feel that vacuum, that the gospel story is no longer being shared there. Now look at this next picture. Same church, just different pictures, but just representation of something. As I sat there in the parking lot yesterday looking at this abandoned, dilapidated church, I sat there and I thought about the Vacation Bible School and how they used to have it there probably and share the gospel there and how they probably had Sunday school and they would share the gospel in Sunday school and how they had certainly had Sunday night and Sunday morning worship services and they preached the gospel, I'm sure, and how they had revival services. I bet they had those too sharing the gospel. And now, now it's empty. Now it's abandoned. Now there is a vacuum there where the gospel is no longer being shared and I bet you know other churches like this one that have closed you can probably come up after the service and say pastor the the church I used to be a member of the church I grew up in the church that used to be in my neighborhood it's closed it's abandoned like that or or you may know a church that's on the verge of closing pastor they got about 10 or 12 people just they're all in their 80s and they're trying to hang on just to see if they can keep the doors open you probably know some churches like that maybe you have been in a church like that and here's my question that I want to talk to you today regarding all of this bad news here's the question I want to address has the gospel stopped working oh maybe we've just stopped sharing did the gospel stop working in liberty? No. But somewhere, somebody decided, I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm not going to share anymore. Now, keep this picture in your mind for a second. Just look at that picture. Don't look at me. Look at this picture. I want that picture to be ingrained in your mind for a moment. I want to contrast, if I can, this picture that you see on the screen with the picture that we see in the New Testament church. I want you to open God's Word with me to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, verse 42. And we'll, if you don't have your Bible, we're going to put that up on the screen for you. Acts chapter 5, verse 42. Here's what the Word says. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Day after day. I love this verse. This is probably my favorite verse in the book of Acts. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped. They never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. 
day after day. Look up here, day after day. They had the opportunity. They had the decision to make day after day. Green light or red light, day after day. They had to make that decision, and they always chose the green light. They always decided to go. Day after day, they never stopped teaching, proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Now, I know what some of you may be thinking. Well, Pastor, it was a lot easier back then. You know, they, don't, they didn't have the cultural pressure that we have today. They, they don't have the, you know, the, the things that we have to deal with and, and the temptations and, the, and all the, the, the society. The society has gotten so bad today. They didn't have to. That was so much easier to live. It was new back then. It was fresh back then. It was alive back then. It was a lot easier to share the gospel back then than it is today. If you believe that, you need to start reading your Bible again. Let me show you something in Scripture. Go with me to Acts chapter 4. You're in the book. Uh, go to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verse 3. Peter and John are out sharing the gospel. They're sharing the good news about Jesus. Uh, the Sanhedrin, the religious council that day, didn't like it. And it says in verse 3, they seized, the Sanhedrin, they seized Peter and John because it was evening, and they put them where? In jail. Until the next day, question, green light or red light? For most of us, we'd say, man, that's a red light moment, right? I'm sharing the gospel, and all of a sudden, people are, are so antagonistic to what I'm sharing, they're going to put me in jail. Are you tempted to say, I'm going to go, or are you tempted to say, I'm going to stop? That was a red light moment. Let's look at another one, verse 18. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. Now you help me. Green light or red light? We're going to be here a while, it looks like. It's a red light moment. I'm not trying to trick you. It's a red light moment. They're commanded not to teach or preach in the name of Jesus. When was the last time somebody commanded you not to teach or preach in the name of Jesus? Well, it might be that does happen in today's society. If you do that, you're going to get fired. But that was a red light moment. At least a red light opportunity, right? It was a red light. Chapter 5, go to chapter 5, verse 18. Let's start at verse 17. Then the high priest and all of his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. Now it's going to get easier. Red light, green light. Red light. Verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said. Notice that word, go. And tell the people the full message of this new life. Now skip down to verse 25. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts and they're teaching the people. At that, the captain went with the officers and brought the apostles. And they did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. In other words, they were arrested again. And once again, another red light moment. Look in chapter 5, verse 33. When they heard this, when the Sanhedrin heard the testimony, when they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. Green light, red light, red light. Last one, verse 40. 
His speech persuaded them, and they called the apostles in and had them flogged, and then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Now, in case you're not sure what flogging is, flogging it means that they whipped their backs with this leather whip that had metal spikes in it. They whipped their backs, and they would give them 39 lashes. So they were brought in, their shirts were removed, they were whipped with this whip 39 times, lacerated their back open, then looked him in the eye and said, I am now ordering you, do not teach or preach in the name of Jesus anymore. Easy question. Green light or red light? Red light. Now watch this. In spite of the threats, in spite of being arrested, in spite of the bloody beating, here's what we read. Day after day, in the temple courts, and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Is that amazing or what? They never stopped. Did they have opportunity to stop? Help me here. Did they have opportunity to stop? Absolutely. Were they threatened and told to stop? Absolutely. Did they pay a price because they wouldn't stop? Absolutely. But day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. And so as I was studying this, I had to ask the question, why? Why would they not stop? Why were they so determined? Why were they so committed? Why were they doing this in spite of the beatings, in spite of the torture, in spite of the jailings? What caused them to keep going? And the answer is right there in the verse. Look here. They never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. They recognized that the message that they had, first of all, was good news. And the people that they were talking to desperately needed this good news. But more than that, here's what the good news was. The good news is this. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus, in that day, they would have said, is the Messiah. Or in our day, we would say it this way. Here's the good news. Jesus is the Savior. They had good news that they really, really, really believed. They really, really, really believe that Jesus is the Savior. That no matter who you are or what you've done, you can be forgiven. No matter who you are or what you've done, God loves you. No matter who you are or what you've done, Christ has died for your sins. That no matter who you are or what you've done, you can have a new life in God. No matter who you are or what you've done, you can go to heaven one day. They had good news and they really, really, really believed Jesus is the Savior of the world. And then it hit me. Do you know how to tell how deeply you believe the message that Jesus is the Savior of the world? Just answer this question. What does it take to stop you? Convicting question, isn't it? What does it take to stop you? How deeply do you really believe? The good news that Jesus is the Savior of the world. 
That's why I'm asking you, challenging you this year. Think like a missionary and live like a missionary. Because, folks, we have good news that Jesus is the Savior of the world. How deeply do we believe that message is the question. The gospel has not stopped working. We have just stopped sharing it. And so we all have this decision to make. We all have a decision about, do I stop or do I go? We all have that decision to make. Think like a missionary. Live like a missionary. Now, when I was in Boston a month or so ago, I began to think about that, and that's really where this message series was kind of birthed in my, in my heart. And, and I was, as I was in Boston, I watched our missionaries up there. I kind of watched what they did. Our church planners, J.D. and Natalie Mangrum, I, I just kind of watched what they did. I thought, what would it mean to think like a missionary and live like a missionary? And then it, it, I noticed four things that they did. These are the four things I'm going to ask you to do this year. First of all, they always focus on lostness. Missionaries always focus on lostness. That's why they are there, right? They're not there as tourists. They're not there just to see the sights. They're not there just to live in a different part of the world. But missionaries, when they go to Boston or when they go to Cleveland or when they go to Thailand, when they go to Indonesia or Vietnam or wherever they go, missionaries go there because they want to focus on lostness. And if we are going to be people who think like a missionary and live like a missionary, we will have to focus on lostness too. When I was in Boston a year or two ago, I was taking a group of pastors from South Carolina uh, up there. Some of you may have heard this story, and, and we had toured the, the city of Boston, saw different missionaries and, and all the church plants and what they're doing, and then we stopped at Starbucks for a break, and one of the pastors was just kind of overwhelmed by what he saw and how the missionaries were, were focusing on lostness. And then he kind of elbowed me while we were in line. His name is Tracy, and Tracy said, he said, Keith, do you know the difference between these people and us, talking about the church planners, he said, do you know the difference between these people and us? And I said, what's the difference? He said, they have to focus on lostness every day in order to survive, and we don't. Man, you talk about conviction. And I've shared that message when I was president of the convention. I shared that message at different places around the state. And almost every time I shared that story and shared that message, you could see the heads of the pastors drop. Because they knew it was true. They knew that they didn't have to focus on lostness in their community. They could be content with their crowd. They could be content with who they have and baptize a few people who grew up in the church. They knew that they don't really intentionally have to engage the community. They can be content just having church. But if you're on the mission field, you have to engage lostness. Otherwise, why are you there? And how are you going to survive? So this, this year, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to beg you, I'm going to push you, let's think like a missionary, let's live like a missionary, let's focus on lostness in our community. Number two, the second thing that I noticed missionaries doing was this. They always were connecting people into small groups. That whenever they meet somebody, they invite them to their small group. And they're always trying to get people in the small group. And it's fascinating how they see that that's one of the important steps in helping people come to faith in Christ, get them connected to a small group. And I'll have to say to you that I've learned the value of small group even recently in a strange way during Financial Peace University. On Sunday nights, we've been having Financial Peace University. David uh, Ramsey, Dave Ramsey, 
Uh, he teaches on the big screen, and we sit out there in the rows just like you're doing. And then after that, we go, we break up into small groups. You know what I've learned? I've really enjoyed the small group. I like Dave Ramsey. I like his teaching. But you know what I've really enjoyed? It surprised me. I didn't expect this. I like being in that small group. I like, it's been years since I've been in a small group because you know, I'm always up here talking to you folks. I'm always up here just talking to people, and it's been years since I've been in a small group of believers, and I got to know people I didn't know, and, and, and I felt like we were encouraging one another and holding each other accountable. And, you know, Andy Stanley says that we learn more in, in circles than we do in rows, and I found that to be true. We learn more in circles in the small group than we do in rows. It's a chance to ask questions, and encourage one another. So I've really enjoyed my small group on Sunday nights. I've really benefited. In fact, I'll show you how much I've benefited. Recently, we had a, a, one of those lessons was on credit and credit cards. And one of the things we talked about in our small group was cutting up our credit cards. And then somebody, somebody to my right said, well, if we're going to do that, I think Keith ought to be first. We need to let the pastor lead the way. I hesitated for a second. I said, all right. I stood up, and then I realized I didn't have my wallet. And I turned to Lisa. I said, I don't have my wallet. And she said, well, I got my wallet. I said, you got your credit card? She said, yeah, I got the credit card. She handed it to me. And right there in front of the class, I cut up her credit card. Now, guys, I want to tell you something. This is the best financial decision I've ever made in my life, was cutting up my wife's credit card. She's very good with a credit card. I'm just joking, and I'm going to get in trouble. Guys, do not go home and cut up your wife's credit card unless you have her permission. I don't have enough time to do counseling for all of you people. Well, the preacher said it was a good, I'm going to cut up my, good idea. I learned something today. I'm going to cut up my wife's credit card. Here's my point with that, with that illustration. I never would have done that had I not been in a small group. Never would have thought about that, probably, if I, had not been in a small group. I probably, if I thought about it, I probably wouldn't have done it, especially Lisa's card, had I not been in a small group. But somebody said, we need to let the preacher take the lead. And so I, was, I had that accountability. I had that encouragement. And I did something I normally would not have done because I was in a small group. And if you get in a small group, you'll find yourself growing in ways in the Lord perhaps you won't find any other way. You'll find yourself doing things, learning things, experiencing things that you probably haven't thought of before and wouldn't have the courage to do. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to encourage you to connect with people in small groups. Number three, we're going to encourage you to serve the community, to get outside the building, and let's go serve the community. You may not know this. We've already started this. Uh, on Sunday, uh, this past Wednesday night, uh, this past Wednesday night, we gathered and we packed, watch this, 600 gift boxes with all kinds of gift cards, and we had a lady in our church who came and made 1,200 cookies. And we packed them with gift cards and then later put the cookies in there. And we're taking them this week to the nine schools that we have in our community. And we're going to give a gift box to every worker in that school. The janitor, the lunch lady, uh, the, the people in the library, all of the teachers, the administration, every person in the school system, in the nine schools around us, going to get a gift box from Mount Airy Baptist Church this week. Does that sound good to anybody? Oh, you know why we're going to do that? 
Because if we show them God's love, maybe we'll have a chance to tell them about God's love. So that's one of the things we're going to encourage you to do this year. Think like a missionary. Live like a missionary. Get connected in the community. I saw J.D. and Natalie do that so often and so well. And we're going to serve our community like them. And finally, we're going to pray. I'm going to tell you something we're going to be doing this year. We're going to be reopening our intercessory prayer room, but we're going to redo it. Before, it's been kind of a restricted thing, and you had to be trained, and you can't tell anybody what's in there and all that kind of thing, and it's kind of a restricted thing with good intentions. But what we're going to do, we're going to change it. We're going to gut it and redo it, and we're going to have a pr- basically a place where you can go pray when you just need to get alone. When you need to get away from the kids, you need to get away from, from all the craziness in your life. When you need a quiet place, we want you to be able to come to your church and pray. We want you to be able to come to here and spend some time with the Lord. So during church hours, of course, we're going to give you that chance to pray so that you can better embrace the mission God has given all of us. Clint Clifton said this. He said, your church is not the answer to the lostness in your city. Make sure you hear all of it. He said, your church is not the answer to the lostness in your city. He said, the gospel you preach is the answer to the lostness in your city. Let's do that. Let's think like a missionary. Let's live like a missionary. I'm going to tell you a closing story about a young lady who lived in Baltimore, Maryland. I think it was 7th Avenue Baptist Church in Baltimore, Maryland. And she had a heart for missions. Though she was a young lady, she had a heart to think like a missionary and to live like a missionary. Uh, she didn't go to the mission field, but, but she had that desire to, to kind of do that at home in her church. And she encouraged others to pray for missionaries and get to know missionaries and all those kind of things. And, and this young lady, her spirit was contagious. And other churches around her church started doing what she was doing. And she formed little groups, and she called it the WMU, the Women's Missionary Union. And, and she went to other churches around her, her area, helping them start that, and then went to other places around the United States. And it just began to spread and spread as she encouraged people to be involved in missions, to go to the mission field, and to support missionaries. She traveled constantly at her own expense, paying her own way, never taking a salary, but just as a regular person trying to think like a missionary and trying to live like a missionary. And in one year, she wrote 18,000 letters by hand. Long before we had computers, in one year, she wrote 18,000 letters to church leaders and to missionaries encouraging them to think like a missionary and live like a missionary. And in case you don't know, 18,000 letters is 60 letters a day for a year. She finally convinced the leaders of the, of the Southern Baptist Convention that we needed to support missionaries in North America financially. And not only did they decide to take up an annual offering, they decided to name it after her, Annie Armstrong. Annie Armstrong next week will take up an offering and she was a lady who said, God's given us a green light. Why are we sitting here? God's given us a clear green light. So let's think like a missionary. Let's live like a missionary. And whatever that means for you, let's do that. She wrote 18,000 letters encouraging others to say, the light turned green. Go. Can I, can, I, can I ask you a personal question? How deeply do you believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world? The answer 
What does it take to stop you? Father, in the name of Jesus, I'm grateful for who you are, grateful for your love and your mercy. Help us not to be content to be the receptacle of that, the receiver of that, and never be the one who shares it. God, as we face a green light in our church, as we face a green light individually, may we be the kind of people who say, Lord, I just want to be involved in it. I want to see lives changed and just show me how to take advantage of the opportunities to think like a missionary and live like a missionary. May it be said of us day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. And it's in his name I pray. Amen.